You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 101 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm very well. Thanks, Valerie. It's, uh, you know, yep, but another week. It's yes. episode 101, so I'm feeling a little hangover from the excitement of episode 100. Yes. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for another century of podcasting glory a <laughs> hundred odd hours of talking to Val <laughs> lucky you lucky me <laughs> oh Great my stuff. goodness but I would like to say thanks to everyone who uh, you know retweeted and cheered and mm. sent messages of love what you know we, we always appreciate a message of love so you know, feel free to send more. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for all your well wishes. And we also have a bit of an announcement, Al. Oh, do we? Tell me, tell me. Yes, because you may remember that we ran a competition over the last few weeks uh, to celebrate our 100th episode. And we're ready to announce the winner. Oh, how exciting. Okay, let's go. Announce. So, the winner. Now, what you had to do, though, to, to, to enter the competition to win a $100 voucher from the Australian Writer Centre to use on courses, it was to uh, write a review on iTunes. And thank you to everyone who entered and who wrote these great reviews. Really appreciate it. But the winner must go to mm-hmm. Kate Johnston. Okay, from, go, Kate. Yeah, from Canada. Oh. Now. I'm, I think you'll agree that Kate's uh, entry is worthy of winning because she wrote her review, Dr. Seuss style, in rhyme. She wins. <laughs> now, she absolutely wins and I, I can't resist that I have to read it to you, Al. All right. Are you ready? Have you got your best Dr. Seussian voice on? Oh, I'm not very good at that because I've had the flu. So oh. you'll just have to cope with my you know, normal everyday voice. Oh, all right then. A Canadian girl, but in Oz soon she'll be, a teacher by trade with a big writing dream. She had written a novel and then the dream stalled. Inspiration was needed, but she had no one to call. A quick Google search and help was soon found. Australian Writers Centre podcast with Alison and Val. Interviews with writers who are the best of the best, helpful tips and tricks, and even trends to test. Whether you write a blog, YA, or travel, they can help you get started and even finish your novel. Or you can listen at home or wherever you are. They provide inspiration when I drive in my car. Link up to the site where there are courses galore in class or online for beginners and more. Punctuation, poems, and note-taking apps, book-themed hotels, and Instagram cats. There's always something to learn. It doesn't cost you a coin. It's like a writer's support group that anyone can join. Oh, bravo, Kate. I'm 
Round of applause. Absolutely. Well done. And thank you so much. Thank you. So, Kate, you definitely win the $100 voucher. Now, just email us, Kate, because we don't know how to reach you through the iTunes machine. Mm -hmm. So email us podcast at writerscentre.com.au and we will give you your $100 voucher. And we can't wait for you to come to our fair land, Australia. Um, <laughs> but even you can use your voucher even if you uh, are not here, of course. So email us, podcast at writercentre.com.au. Um, this will be available. You need to email us before the end of March, okay? Or you snooze, you lose. You have to email us before the end of March. All right. We look forward to uh, hearing from you. But – Let's move on to the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. Excellent. What have you got for us, Valerie? I read an interesting article in The Guardian, and we'll put the link in the show notes, and it's about how young women, sort of like in their 20s, the Harry Potter generation, they're Mm -hmm. called the Potter generation, who grew up basically reading Harry Potter, but they're now in their 20s and 30s, and they are shaping, essentially shaping the book industry, um, shaping publishing in recent years, because they've now moved on from Harry Potter, and they're you know, spearheading the trend in grip lit. Grip lit. Do what you know is what, grip lit? Yeah, grip lit is where a thrillers where you're gripping, you know, the book right. or gripping the edge of your seat or gripping whatever. <laughs> grip okay. lit. Yes. So, in fact, crime and thriller novels uh, account for 29% of the market, which is the second largest genre behind general and literary fiction, which is 41%. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, it, they're things like, you know, God Girl or The Girl on the Train and um, that sort of thing. And Grip Lit is essentially bought by women. 67% are, are women with 25 to 34-year-olds accounting for the largest age category within that. Mm. Interesting. Um, 60% of sales for Girl on the Train um, were from women, whereas just 17% of sales were males aged 25 to 34. So it seems like um, people who grew up on Harry Potter now want a little bit of, uh, you know, it's changed, their, their tastes have changed slightly as they're growing up and they want to be scared. Right. And entertained. So what are all those boys that were reading Harry Potter? What have they all gone on to read? Yeah, that's a very good question. Because I'd be interested to know whether they've gone into different genres or mm. um, whether or not this is just, uh, you know, like this is what's been published at the moment so Mm. this is what people have read like this is what all the hype's about so this is what people are reading Mm. Mm. I wonder if they've gone on to fantasy books well that's what I'm wondering too yes well we don't know if anyone else knows do let us know Mm. very interesting I'm hoping to um to speak to a very well-known Australian fantasy author in the next few weeks so maybe I'll ask him yeah (laughs) if he's got any idea what's going on so we'll move on to something quite different. Now, we'll put this link in the show notes because there's some great pictures, but it's from a uh, blog called The Berry, and it's 13 bedrooms literature lovers would want to sleep in. And right. there's some fantastic pictures. So like I said, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au 
for quick and easy access. But uh, there's a lot of these, there's a lot of beautiful images of bedrooms that are full of books, you know, where books are piled high behind, instead of having a bed head, you have like a huge amount of books. I'd be scared they're going to fall on my head, to be honest. Well, I'm looking at number five and I'm pretty sure, which has got, it, it looks like a Harry Potter cubby house bedroom and I yes. would I I would give me nightmares like there's just too much yes clutter going I, on in there I don't think I could have uh, a whole room of books because all of those words you know do you think they'd be whispering at you yeah all night, permeating Alan? my sleep I need a really really clean zen bedroom with the only book being the one on my bedside table that I'm reading yeah I actually I have to confess I do prefer my books in my study and yes. that's actually where I keep them. My biggest issue at the moment though is I have a 12-year-old son who loves reading mm. and not only does he love reading but he reviews books for several websites and uh, I managing his book collection mm. is one of the most difficult aspects of my daily you know, well-being at the moment. So (laughs) it's just honestly they every morning I go in there like and there's just they're all over the floor. He's reading like seven things at once and there's books everywhere and he's drawing comics and he's and it's just crazy. And it, I mean, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not what you call a a declutterer on any level, Mm. but there's just something about it that makes me really twitchy. So we're (laughs) we're currently, I know, I'm sounding like such a mom, I know. So we're um, we're currently working on sort of redeveloping his bedroom, but we're putting in two massive bookshelves into his room just to try and manage this book situation that we have going on here. I mean, I guess, you know, given I have a 12-year-old son, I should be thankful that I do have this problem that he's yes. actually, you know, so into books. But, yeah, it's just and he reads them so quickly that they just stack up. You know? So they he just wants to up. keep them? Mostly he wants to keep them. We do we do offload. Like I do a massive, like, clear out of both of it. My other son, my nine-year-old, is also a reader, so we, I also uh, is not to the same extent. But I do a massive clear out of both of their bookshelves every um, year and we offload stuff to the school fate and, mm. you know, various things. So we're... We're getting rid of, you know, 100, 120 books a year. Wow. That's what we're getting rid of. And then we also have this, you know, situation where we've got all these ones he wants to keep. But he likes to keep, you know, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and sure. a lot of the stuff that he, he does reread. Harry Potter, we've got the whole set, you know, all that sort of yeah. stuff. They just take up room they and do. they're fabulous to have. But you just go, oh, really? Mm. Okay. You need like a library, don't you? You do need a library. People would mm. say to me I need a Kindle for him, but it's just... <laughs> doesn't like them. It's really interesting. He doesn't like e-books, so we've tried. Oh, really? Mm, not keen on them. I like a book, Mum. Yeah, <laughs> right. Righto. <right-o. laughs> You'll have to um, convert one of your rooms into a library. I know. I'm trying to convince my husband of this, but so far he's not on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll I can back sleep. To you. <laughs> I don't think I can sleep with all that clutter. No, no. No, but they are very beautiful pictures and uh, if you are inclined to sleep with that kind of clutter, have a look because some of them are quite inspirational. Mm. Um, although some some of them I think are a bit more decorative rather than intellectual because you can, you know, there's people where have libraries where all of the books are colour-coded. Yeah, no. I, I've never understood. <laughs> never, never understood, understood that. It. No. But, you know, I can see it looks nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. There's also the one time that I could live with a, the, with the clutter, not that it was clutter, it was actually very beautiful, was at the Library Hotel in New York. And um, that's a hotel where it's it's called the Library Hotel. Everything is themed like a library. When you check in, the, um, the people at reception and behind them, it's just floor to ceiling, uh, you know, like those catalogue cards, ca- catalogue drawers. Yep. Um, so it, it looks really impressive. And then every single room has a different theme. Like one room is law, one room is erotica, one room is, you know, probably crime and thriller or something like that. So it, it's kind of cute. It follows the Dewey system, I believe. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be loving that, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. Although I got, when I stayed there, I got the room the, the 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 law room so unfortunately it wasn't really filled with that's the most weighty. yeah <laughs> the most exciting books but that's okay I was in New York so I ventured out and explored that instead um let's move on to something different I have a link to a really interesting good sort of compilation on medium by someone called Erica Hayasaki and it's called women who pitch freelancing in the digital age and what she did was take got some takeaways from a panel at a recent writers conference about basically do's and don'ts on pitching and um, there are people there who you know have pitched to Cosmopolitan and Fast Company and the Washington post and excuse me and so on and um, it's full of really really useful tips and I think these are sometimes tips that you and I take for granted because when I speak to people about them and I think that you know I don't want to state the obvious or tell them to suck eggs um, (laughs) that you Val held back in this area (laughs) I find this so hard to believe (laughs) that when I do start you know getting back to basics it's it's news to them so I thought I'd mention a couple of the things because they're quite useful one thing that um, Mona Gable, who has written for lots of different publications, including Los Angeles Magazine and Salon and so on, has said is read several issues of the publication you'd like to write for to make sure they haven't already done a story like yours. And of course, she wants you to read several issues of the publication to get the tone and style of the publication and that sort of thing. Because I am often really shocked when people say, oh, I want to write for Good Weekend or I want to write for, you know, X, whatever X is. But they haven't read any issues lately and Uh, I just don't know how that's possible. You have to be reading the magazines that you actually want to write for because it gives you such an insight into the kind of stories that they would like. But even just the way the stories are structured, often there's a uh, commonality in the way the stories are structured. So it's absolutely really useful to look at, read several issues of the publication. And so many publications are available online these days, although mm. try where possible to get the hard copy, of course. Absolutely. So and also go one. to your library because they always have back yes. issues. Yes, absolutely. The, another one which I think w- people take, well, people like us take for granted is. Write your pitch in the voice and style of the article you're pitching. I was going to bring that one up too. I think that's one of the best things she says. Yes. So important because sometimes people, I've read people's pitches and they're to, you know, a fairly friendly uh, lifestyle magazine and it's like academic speak the way Mm. that they write their pitch. Yeah. That it is not going to be interested if they think that that's the way you are going to write write the story. 
but yeah, we'll put the we'll put the link in the show notes. And yeah, you want to give you want to give the editor a taste of you. You need to give them a, a sense of what the style of the thing is going to be because you can feel as an editor, you know, as someone who's worked as a features editor, you can feel from the pitch whether the person is going to be whether you're going to feel confident that that person is going to be able to produce the story that the way that you need it to be written. And that's yes. you know that confidence is so important when it comes to you actually going yes, I will commission you to do this story or. Eh, not quite, not quite right, not for us. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely, because yeah, they don't really know important. you from a bar of soap in, in no. most cases, so you need to give them as much confidence as you can. Oh, and, and here's the other one I love too. Don't pitch a topic, pitch yeah. a story. Oh, don't pitch a subject, pitch so, an angle. Yeah. You know, you have to tell us what, you know, what is our niche, what is our introduction into this subject going to be? Give me the angle, give me the actual story, not yes. the subject. So important. Yeah, very, very important. Um, and a, an example of that, I'm just um, trying to think off the top of my head now, but an example of that might be uh, um, a, a topic is um, the trend of um, – Okay, how about this? A subject is postnatal depression. I yes. want to write a story about postnatal depression. A story is 10 signs you may have PND and not know it. Or, yes. you know, I had PND and this was my experience. It, you need to look at how can you take that subject of postnatal depression, which is massive, mm. and how you're going to put an actual angle on that piece how are you going to make a story out of that subject yes or the um the the increase of postnatal depression among 30 something women and exactly. why and then and then it's very specifically targeted to a publication mm. that is aimed at 30 something women absolutely there you go thanks for saving me on that one well, i was wondering where you were going to go there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna let you just swing out there just to see what you did but uh, I, oh, okay well we we have a great giveaway this week. This one's awesome. I mean, they're all awesome, of course. But this is a, a bit of a package. Yes. Now, this week you can win uh, a package brought to you by the generous people at Macquarie Dictionary and they're giving three lucky winners a pack containing five books. So each winner will win a Macquarie Dictionary, a thesaurus, and three Pan Macmillan novels by authors Di Morrissey, Tony Park, and Liz Bursky. Wow. One of each. That's so, a great pack. Yeah, it's a great pack. So uh, just enter at writerscentre.com.au slash win. Um, and you have until Monday the 28th of March uh, that's when entries close. But if you listen to this podcast episode in the future, don't worry. If you go to writerscentercomau slash win, there'll be another giveaway that you can enter. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Book Covers That Sell, is ideal if you want to self-publish your work and make your first impression count. Because, like it or not, we all judge a book by its cover, and this course will teach you some of the fundamental design secrets to have your cover standing out for all the right reasons. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn when and where you want with 12 months access to all course materials. 
Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash covers. Okay, let's move on now to our writing craft book of the week. Well, remember last week I mentioned to you that I had bought the book Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. Yes, and then you'd rip the cover trying to squeeze it into your bookshelf. Yeah, I'm still annoyed about that. Uh, So while I had the flu, (laughs) I had the opportunity to to start the book, which is great. I also had the – when you have the flu, though, I might add, I haven't finished the book because when you have the flu, you're so brain dead that really all you're capable of is sleeping or um, watching – binge-watching Netflix (laughs) (laughs) yes Valerie or in my case Stan I signed up to Stan because uh I wanted to watch didn't have enough television because there wasn't enough television but -hmm. anyway I have started the book and it's really cool she's been a copy editor at the New Yorker for I don't know like 35 years or something but one of the things that struck me and I've been obsessed with ever since interestingly because she can pinpoint when her love of words or when her fascination for words started and uh, this is Mary Norris and it is when she discovered or was reading uh, a book and it made reference to the word synecdoche synecdoche Hmm. now well I'll spell it s-y-n-e D-O-C-H-E. Why is that not just signed Dosh or something? I know, like right? <laughs> it's, it reads <laughs> just like. Or Sina Dosh. Sina Dosh, I like that. It reads just like sign Dosh, right? Right. But it's Synecdoche. <laughs> right. And it's such an interesting word. So I've been obsessed with this word ever since reading it in this book. Now, a Synecdoche, I've also been obsessed with trying to say it yes clearly <laughs> you should say it a few more thousand times for a spell just oh, so you get it and right. i've spelled it wrong it's s-y-n-e-c synecdoche d-o-c-h-e so right. synecdoche is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase that refers to a part of something is substituted to stand in for the whole or vice versa. So to give you an example, when you say something like, oh, he's an actor and he's been shredding the boards, Mm -hmm. the boards, referring to the floorboards of the stage, is part of the, the bigger thing, right, the stage, but you say treading the boards. Ah. Another example might be, oh, he's a grey beard, which basically implies he's an old man. Hmm. But uh, the the grey beard is the synecdoche because the grey beard is part of the whole, which is the old man, right? Yes. Yes, synecdoche. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with us, Valerie. I don't know how I would have coped if I hadn't known that. As soon as you said grey beard to me, I started thinking of Gandalf in Hobbits and things like that. So I I went went totally down a whole different world. Okay. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some listeners out there who are just as fascinated by this word as I am. I'm sure they are. I am too. Really? Sure you are. Sure you are. Honestly. Can't you tell? (laughs) All right. Instead, why don't you tell us who our writer in residence is this week? Well, now this actually was fascinating um, and surprisingly fascinating because 
unexpectedly fascinating, shall we say. So only from the perspective that I found myself reading a military biography, which oh. is not my general reading material, mm-hmm. but I read a book called Stone Cold, The Extraordinary Story of Len Opie, Australia's Deadliest Soldier. Mm-hmm. And it's written by an author, a journalist and author, Andrew Faulkner, um, He works uh, in newspapers down in Adelaide and this is his second biography. And we had a very, very interesting conversation, not so much about platoon movements, although there is a little (laughs) bit of that in the book, um, but just about putting a biography together and and dealing with subject matter that can be sensitive when you're talking about somebody, not only the subject of your your, uh, book, but other people within that book. And you're talking about a war history environment Mm. and, you know, people's legacies, family legacies and things like that and how you manage that sort of thing. And it was, yeah, really, really interesting conversation. So I hope you guys um, enjoy it as much as I did. Andrew Faulkner is an Adelaide-based journalist with 25 years' experience and the author of the highly acclaimed biography, Arthur Blackburn, V.C. His second biography, Stone Cold, is described as the extraordinary true story of Len Opie, Australia's deadliest soldier, and is out now. So welcome to the program, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on. Right, so let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Arthur Blackburn, V.C. How did you come to write your first biography? Well, I've always had an interest in military history, and I read Les Carlin's um, book on Gallipoli, and he mentioned Blackburn, and he mentioned that Blackburn had got the furthest in land of any Australian soldier with a comrade on the first day at Gallipoli. And he sort of trailed off by saying for Blackburn it was the start of an extraordinary life, and it mentioned his extraordinary life in probably 60 words. So I went searching for a Blackburn biography, and there was none. Um, I, I later found out that all the um, noted military historians assumed that it had been done. It had never been done, so I decided to do it. Ah, um, so you did that classic thing of writing the book that you wanted to read. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I wonder why, why people would want to read my books because I have a fairly sort of, you know, eclectic taste in military history. Um, but I've been lucky with both my books that it's... it's um, it's been topics that I've been interested in myself. Now, I should point out at this point that we are actually speaking from the newsroom, so if there's any atmospheric chatter in the background, it's just a fast-breaking story and <laughs> something along those lines, right? Exactly. All right, so um, now your your Arthur Blackburn biography came in at 552 pages, which is a serious, you know, there's some serious dedication in that. Were you actually working full-time as a journalist when you wrote that? I was. I was. It was actually about 160,000 words, I think, the first draft. I fully expected that it had to be chopped back, but they actually asked for more in the end. I think it ended up about 180,000 words. Wow. um, But it was a labor of love. I I mean, I I did something. I had a rule where I'd do something on it every day, whether it just be checking a fact or, you know, reading a a chapter of a book that, you know, for background. That was my rule, um, and I stuck to it. Um, But now, looking back at it, I, I, I wonder how it actually happened. It, just, it doesn't seem real. Do, how do you like when you're doing a project like that? Because that you know that's a lot of research in a you know to create something of that size. How did you manage the writing and research? When you say you sort of did something on it each day, um, you know, how did you keep track of the research in the sense of or where you're up to with the writing when you were busily doing other things? You know, like a full time job as well. A lot of mill folders. Okay. <laughs> Very old school. 
um, of my generation. A huge amount of newer folders. Uh, the thing about Blackburn was there were so many different compartments to his life. Uh, there was World War One, um, Gallipoli and the Western Front, where he won his VC. Then there was the Between the War stuff, where he was one of the founders of the RSL. He was one of the founders of Legacy. He was a state coroner. He was involved in the strike-breaking strike in, the, in the 1920s. Um, he was in the militia. And then, of course, he was in World War Two. So um, there was all these different compartments to his life, and I had to keep them, keep them separate and keep pretty well organised, which for me was quite astonishing because I'm incredibly disorganised. <laughs> Uh, but as far as the actual workload went, I actually looked forward to doing it. Mm. After after a day in the newsroom, I, I really enjoyed getting home. And actually, it was an adventure. Like it was, um, it was a journey. And a journey sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it, it, it was a journey of discovery, um, finding out all these different different little interesting facts about him. And the thing about him is that he encompassed. When I think of the Australian war experience, and I think of Gallipoli, you think of the Western Front in World War One. You think of the Middle East, you think of the war against the Japanese, and you think of the POW experience with the Japanese. Blackburn was at the heart of all of those particular mm. aspects of the Australian war story. So mm. that's why I found it so interesting. So where does this um, where does this come from? This interest in military history is this something that you've always had? I just you know, child of my generation, you know, Saturday afternoons in the seventies, there was always a war movie on on TV, toy soldiers. Um, I grew up a lot at the RSL, the local RSL club, which in Adelaide, it's very different to the Eastern States because there's no pokies. So uh. they're just little suburban community hubs where they have a barbecue. And um, my father was very involved in the RSL. And so I grew up at the feet of, of you know, original Anzacs, um, just a local sub-branch that is very rich in that history. A lot of blokes were at Gallipoli at the landing. Um so that that that's, it was sort of imbued in me in a way, I suppose. So, and the interest has, has lingered, endured. So, what made you think? What made you go from that to I reckon I could write a military biography that doesn't exist on you know one of Australia's greatest? <laughs> well, it's you... not really it's not really that great a leap, really. I mean, no, no one's done it, so I mean, yeah. not, it wasn't going to be held up to anything. Mm. Um, and to me, I just looked at it as an extended piece of journalism. I mean, I'm not a historian; I don't pretend to be a historian. I I don't have any historians training. Um, so I looked at it as an extended piece of journalism. But I really, what I really enjoyed about it was having the freedom um, to actually be able to express myself and not be bound by mm. newspaper style and convention. So it was like a series of long features where I could just start where I wasn't really being subbed. Do you think then that it's, um, it's important for a biographer to have a true interest in the subject or do you think that as a researcher, writer, you know, professional that you are, you'd be able to find the interest in any subject? I don't presume to speak for others, but I think for me, I think I needed to have an interest in it. I think I'd find it a hard slog if I was writing about something that I wasn't interested in. Mm. I, I think I'd find that very difficult. Um, I mean, with Opie, Opie was, in a way, was, was harder to write because it was based on his diary. So it wasn't as, it was very different to the Blackburn book. Mm. Uh, and I did it almost um, begrudgingly. Like Len asked me to do the book for him. Um, but then he died, um, yes. and I didn't really think I had time to do it. Right. Um, but I was talked into it by another author, a bloke called Peter Broon, who's um, written a lot of books about uh, the New Guinea campaigns. Right. Probably the foremost um, ex- expert as far as that goes. Yep. He said, "Look, you've got to do it." So 
I did it. Yeah. That was it. He said, you've got to do it, and off you went. Yeah, he said, Lee's got to do it. And he put me under Alan Unwin, and Alan Unwin did the book, and they, I think they, they put out a good book. So did you feel, um, like, when you, because you obviously knew Len, um, yeah. as a, you know, before he died, obviously. So did you think of him as a natural subject for it? Like, did you think to yourself, yeah, this guy's got a great story, there's definitely a, a book in this? Like, or was it more a matter of, well, Len's asked me to do it, and here's his diaries, I'll just get on with it? It was the former. It was the former. He, he was definitely, I mean, all things being equal, if I, if I was doing nothing else in the world and I was getting paid $100,000 to write a book, yeah. then he's a great subject. Yes, he but, is. I yeah. mean, he's an amazing story. Mm. He's, he's an amazing yeah. story. I'm, I've been mm. reading the book and I am just, you know, slightly dumbfounded that these people are just out there doing their thing and you don't even you could meet him down the street and not know you know what I mean? well that, that's the thing i mean Len is an extreme example but there are so many biography subjects in the australian wars or stories yeah. that, haven't, that haven't been addressed there are so many stories out that haven't been done i mean you know it seems like every week there's a new book on monash or yeah. you know a new, new book on Kokoda or gallipoli i mean the, the shelves are stocked with gallipoli books i mean there's nothing i don't think there's anything else left to say about gallipoli but there's so many other stories out there that haven't been told that need to be told. Yeah. So you'll do another one, do you think? Just, oh, uh, just going down the track, yeah. Oh, I've got a few ideas, yeah. Um, in the meantime, I'm doing a something quite different. I'm doing a history of a cricket club, oh. which doesn't sound terribly fascinating, but it is the history of my cricket club, the club that I've played for for 30-odd years, which is the club that um, Don Bradman played for in Adelaide, the Kensington oh. District Cricket Club. So that's, okay. that's commissioned work and... Uh, it's been a labour of love over about 10 years, and I've got another couple of years to finish that off. But I think at the same time, I'm, I'm going to start another war book or two. So just out of interest with that, because I think that one thing with biography is like, you know, there's a lot of people, as you say, out there with great stories to tell. And there's a lot of people, like as soon as you publish a book, someone will come up to you and tell you that you should write their story for them, because that's pretty much how how it works. But um, how do you choose, like when you're looking at your, you're saying to me, you've got a few ideas perhaps for another biography, how will you choose the subject? How will you decide which one is the is the one that is actually going to make a book? You go with the passion. I mean, you, you, you go with what interests you. You go, you go with the you go with the moment. You go with the spark. I think okay. you've got to have you've got to have some passion in your writing, and and you know that light bulb moment where you get the inspiration for, for something. Just like a new story, really. Yeah. You, you've got to strike while the iron's hot. You've got to do it and. And go with the passion. I, I couldn't write on something that I thought was pedestrian. I mean, why would people want to read something that I find pedestrian? Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I've got a few ideas, ideas for war books, and and I'm I'm trying to get stuck into them while I've got that while that you know that while the sort of the, the lights on. Okay. And so with the two that you've done, how long does it actually take you to bring all the research together and actually write write the book? Uh, well, again, as I said, I'm very disorganised, but uh, Blackburn was, I think it was uh, seven years from oh. from start to finish. Wow, okay. Uh, and OP was about four or five years. Okay. So, yeah, my output's not great. Yeah, well, no, no better for silence. But I think it just goes to show you, too, the amount of work involved, or the amount of research that's actually involved and the amount of, you know, the time that you need to put into something like this to bring out something that's worth reading, don't you think? Exactly, and yeah. and, and we've got to eat. Yes, uh, and, and <laughs> there that, is that. <laughs> yeah, there is that. You know, you don't make you don't make your fortune out of it. So no, that's yeah. right. I, I don't think people really understand that. Like they, they see books retailing for thirty five dollars. I go, gee, well, the author made it's so expensive without actually realising that we get about two dollars fifty per that's, copy. But, that's so true. That's true. Yeah. And so that's why we have day jobs, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. All right. So the I guess um, when you're dealing with a lot of research like this, I think one of the problems that people have, and I know that I often get asked this question, is knowing when to stop in the sense that you could just research forever, couldn't you? Because it's so interesting and it's so much easier than actually writing because you're just, you know, reading stuff and, and all that sort of thing. But so how how did you know when you had enough to actually write the book? That's a really, really, really good question and a really interesting one and one that I haven't actually thought of. I think perhaps it might have been an automatic thing that's built into me with the deadlines for journalism. Yes. You know, at some stage you've got to say, right, that's it. Deadline's looming, get mm. it done. Um, Deadlines are very motivating, aren't they? Well, they are. They are. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, with Blackburn, there was such a a rich, you know, it was such a rich story. There was so much stuff. I suppose I did have to draw a line somewhere. Um, But I suppose also the length, when it's getting up towards 150,000 words, you start to realise that it's time maybe to to stop researching. Yes, and just finish the story. Yeah. How do you stop the facts then from overwhelming the story? Because that's the other problem I think that people have is that they want to share every single thing they've ever learnt about every aspect. Uh, How do yeah, you stop well, that's that? Yeah, that's where the editors come in. I do. Uh. This, is, this is taking me back to Blackburn, actually. I mean, they, they did actually ask me to um, do another 20,000 words, but they probably hacked out another 20,000 as well. You know? Okay. While this is interesting, it's not, you know, it's not essential, you know, um, gone, you know, mm. whole pages cut out. You, you're, you're familiar with this I editing am. process. It just makes you cry. Killing your it? darlings. Yeah, killing everything. <laughs> 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 and hopefully leaving a breathing corpse at the end of it. Exactly. Uh, but, I mean, where would we be without them? Uh, well, are, we'd, be, we'd be nowhere, that's right. Yeah, it's so important. All right, so now let's just switch to, to Len Opie, so to the book Stone Cold. You, you've, you've got a subject like Len who, you know, we're calling on the cover Australia's Deadliest Soldier. There's a fair bit of killing involved um, and a family still around because, they're, you know, you spoke to family members, you've got Len's diaries, you know. Is it difficult to tread a line between telling the story and managing the family legacy, if you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. That's that's another good question. I mean, there's even a few things in Blackburn where things had to be chopped out. Mm. Um, what I did was, in the first instance, is I wrote it pretty hard. I wrote, wrote Len pretty hard. Like Len's diaries are very uncompromising. Right. Um, he was highly critical of a lot of people. He called people cowards. Yep. Um, including people who are still alive. Oh. Um, he, you know, worse than that, he, he probably um, accused people of war crimes. Um. So I had to be a bit discerning with that, but I, I think it, it's like like a contentious news story. You write it hard, you write it as hard as you can, and then turn it off to the lawyers, <laughs> um, and then they that's, they that's what they earn their money for. So that's that's I think that's a pretty good rule to go by. Uh, but we had to be careful because there are people still alive, and not just that. There might be grandchildren children who think, oh well, you know, my grandfather was a war hero. Yeah, and you know what's what's the point in actually saying that you know Len Len says that he wasn't a war hero; he's actually a coward, mm. um, and with no right of reply from the person who's, who's dead. No, and we're only reading so, we're reading Len's subjective perspective, and you exactly. know in some of those cases, Len was having a pretty hard time of it by the sound of things too. <laughs> Just quietly. Well, that's true, but so it's, there's all these different moral issues. Um, and issues of fairness, which again, you know, the, the journalism training kicks into a degree. You've got to be fair to people. You've got to give people a right of reply. And if you can't give people a right of reply, and it's it's weighing it up. It's, it's sort of you know risk and reward. Like, what's the point in actually doing it if it's just going to offend people down the track, if it's going to offend the descendants? But you I also mean, have to tell the truth, don't you? Because at the end of the day, you're writing a record that is going to be read yeah. down the track. So, yeah. 
yeah, you, it's yeah. You, you must have days where you feel like you're walking on eggshells as you're writing the stuff. You, you do, you do, but you can you can check it as much as you can. There are avenues of checking things. Yes, um, there are corroborating sources. That there are. I mean, you can you can you can take it a fair way before you make your call about whether it goes in or not. I particularly um, enjoyed. I particularly enjoyed the um, the disparity between, or the shall we say the let's say the colour in Len's diaries compared to the official company logs, which I'm assuming that yeah. you read or were had available yeah. to. And I I yeah. I really actually really enjoyed that aspect of it in that sense of you really get the sense of there you are with Len and this is the official line. I I liked that aspect of it. I'm really glad glad you like that because I I I'd hope people would like that. Yeah, I think uh, it's great. Look, Len was, yeah, he was, he, he, he didn't want to um, walk the company line, so no. to speak, excuse the pun, but the, um, yeah, the, I know what you mean, the, the official diary would say, you know, so-and-so was a casualty in the night, but Len would explain that he was shot by a comrade coming in, know. you know, by a sentry coming in from, you know, going to the toilet. Um, oh, which is just awful when you yeah, think about I know. it. <laughs> But it's he, he he didn't suffer fools and he and and in that way he in a lot of ways he actually sort of um, not debunks the Anzac legend but gives it some perspective and gives mm. it some truth. Mm. Very very true. So so you are working from Len's own diaries, which were faithfully transcribed for you by Vic Pennington, um, yeah. which is mentioned several times. So Vic's obviously put in quite a lot of work to transcribe those. Diaries oh, for many, you. many years of work. Yeah. Tiny little, you know, you know, those tiny little notebooks, those, yes. those really small ones? Yes. And his writing, I couldn't read it, but Vic could read it. And mm. it would have been over 200,000 words worth, so... Thanks, yeah. Thank heavens for Vic, is all I can say. Yeah. Because that would have been a nightmare. So you had also known Len. So did that help, like, in the sense of getting the sense of... I mean, obviously, you you knew the sense of him, even if there were no formal interviews? Oh, look, it was such a big help. Um I, one of the questions I get asked about Blackburn is, you know, do you feel you, you knew him? I, I think I knew him as much as I could, but I never met him. So he died in 1960. But when I was lucky enough to meet him three or four times. Right. And I was so, so lucky to meet him and it, it gave me, it gave me, it gave me a bit of colour for the book. Yeah. Yeah. But it also, but it also gave me perspective, and it also, I, I think if I'd come at it without actually meeting him, I might not have liked him as much. Um, but I, yes. I, but I did. I mean, there are aspects of Lynn's character that aren't really all that likable. Yeah. Um, but sitting there with this old man, <clears throat> with his lapdog sitting in my lap, and him making me these cups of tea and telling me these incredibly dry one-liners. Um, that old, you know, sort of depression era generation of Australians that have that really dry, you know, sense yeah. of humour. Yeah. Um, I was, I was so so blessed to have that, and it just made such a difference. Well, yeah. it is because he is surprisingly likable, like in the sense of some of the stuff that he's saying and and you know what's going on and stuff like that. You kind of you feel like you shouldn't like him as much as you do, but you do. He's very opinion. He's a very opinionated man. Oh, I think you're absolutely spot on. Alfred. I think you're spot on. Yeah, you feel like you shouldn't like him, but you do. And, yeah, you do. And and he was he was a funny man. Yes, I can imagine he would have been. So it's actually quite – so, I, you know, I'm reading this book. It's a very blokey, man's manny kind of book, if you know what I mean, the, yeah. the voice of it. But it's surprisingly easy reading given, like, I have zero interest in detailed troop movements, but I, I've, i you know, I still found the whole thing quite read, readable. Yeah, I, I might have overdone that a little bit. But, yeah, it is It is very boys' own and in a way that's an indulgence on my behalf. I was going to say, I, is it a conscious thing or is it your natural voice or like – Oh, 
Look, I think I think it was, as I say, I think it was a bit of an indulgence. But I, I've, I was taken back to my boyhood a bit writing this book. Um, Len, Len, Len was a train spotter. So when he was in the battlefield, if there wasn't any trains around, which often there wasn't, they might have been blown up. Or, yeah. He he became a, he was a, just a, a plane spotter. Yeah. Par excellence. And he would mention every single plane that landed at the airstrip. And, <laughs> and in Vietnam, he was forever in the air. And he, he'd detail what type of plane it was, you know, and how many engines, you know, the whole deal. So there I was on the internet. I would have been lost without the internet. Um, there I was on the internet the whole time just looking up these planes. And yeah. just, uh, it was this sort of boy's own adventure into 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 um, aerial hardware and and the same with the weaponry. Like, you know, he'd mentioned, you know, an M sixty or, you know, a different type of weapon and I'd have to look that up and and so I think I probably did overindulge a little bit. But mind you, I think I think also uh, um, the editors and I can cut a fair bit of that sort of stuff out. But, but I also, yeah, to be oh. honest, I think that people who are interested in you know the kind of people who are probably going to pick this up in a bookshop in a bookshop are going to really love that aspect of it. It's, oh, you know, it's not so. it's not probably what I would normally. I mean, my dad's gonna, <laughs> my dad is going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but I I did find it. You know, I was surprisingly interested, and I think it was because he's such an interesting subject. I couldn't quite, you know, trying to put it together. He's a total nerd, really. Like the whole train spotting, plane spotting thing is, yeah, and totally at odds with this other side of him. Which well, I that's think, the thing. I mean, the, the Len book is about his contradictions, the many contradictions in his character. The way he's this great warrior, this you know supreme hand to hand fighter. You know, this this just just the pinnacle of Australian soldiering. Mm. But at the same time, he you know didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't swear. Mm. You know, you know, wasn't he's a larrikin in some some respects, but mostly wasn't. So mm. the, the contradictions are at the heart of his story. But it, just getting back to the the aircraft, things such as I mean, I I found out that um, the CIA had drones in Vietnam in you know the nineteen sixties. Mm. Yeah. You know, Things like that, I just, just found, find that fascinating. You know, mm. drones are so much in the news now, but they had them then. Yeah. You know, I, I really enjoyed finding out details such as that. I, I really enjoyed that. So you've just got that slightly nerdy aspect yourself. Oh, right? I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe not slightly, maybe a bit more than slightly. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Let's just go with that, shall we? All right. Now, so do you see um, long-form writing like this? Is this an extension of your journalism skills or is this a whole different – is there a, sort of a whole new challenge again? Oh, as I said, I think it's it's built from a base of the journalism skills. So that's the base, and you just expand on that. Mm. And as I said before, I, I, I enjoy the freedom. Um, I enjoy being able to you know, explore a simile or a metaphor that you wouldn't be able to get away with in a feature. Mm. And often, yeah, I'll have to get away with it in the book. Thank goodness for the editors. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, people say writing's hard as if as if it's... As if it's something they don't like. I, mm. I find it bizarre that writers would say that. Yeah, it's hard, but that doesn't mean it's not enjoyable. Mm. Like, hard, hard can be good. Hard, hard can be fun. Like, mm. Hard is rewarding. And once you once you get in that zone and you, and, and and you're writing, there's you know you, you know you're in you know this yourself. You, you know when you're in that zone, and mm. it's a good place. It's a good place to be, and it's a very satisfying thing. And, and finding just the right turn of phrase, just the right simile or metaphor, is something that's really really pleasurable. I think. Did you have? Were you conscious when you're writing something like this? Are you conscious of story structure, of narrative structure, in the sense that you know, yes, you're putting in a whole lot of details and doing history and whatever, but you're telling a story from start to finish. Are you are you plotting that out, or is that no, just something no, that's naturally no, coming along? No, 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 I didn't naturally come along. It's again, editors. <laughs> 
No, I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good at that at all. I, I, but I think that's probably the negative of the journalism side. It's sort of, as I said, the sort of connected list of features that needs to have that narrative, you know, retrofitted at times, I think. So your editors um, helped you with this, with that structure? Yeah, yeah, the editors, my, editors, my two editors were Andrew Hanley and Rebecca Kaiser. I've mentioned both of them were excellent with that. Yep. They were very good at that. Yep. Um, Andrew, you've straight off the path here. This, this contradicts that. You need to sort that out, you know. Wow. Um, so again, the, uh, I hope they're listening to this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll make sure the, they the, do. We'll they, tag they, them. They, uh, they hold you back on the path, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, well, that's great. But I would imagine that now having done two... You would have a clearer idea of that going into a third, or not I so think much. So, yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, okay. I cool. hope so. Now, with regards to your kind of work, have your publishers talked to you about you know building your profile as an author? Do you have do you do social media and do you do or any of those sorts of things? As far as is there an andrewfaulkner.com that we can go and visit? <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's you should have one of these. That sounds ridiculous. That should be there. Uh, uh, I've got a Twitter handle. Oh, well, there That's you go. Mostly cricket stuff. <laughs> and thanks for following me this morning too, by the way. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> no, no, they haven't talked to me about that, no. Right, so that's no. not something that you would do. Like if if you were going to try and build yourself a long-term career as a biographer, is that something that you would do? Well, how many people have got a long-term career as a biographer in this country? Andrew, you could be the first. <laughs> as long as we, if you get andrewfaulkner.com going right now, first. you could be the first. Yeah. Gee, yeah, no, he yeah. says. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Okay. No. So that's a no on the author platform. No, I, I don't like the idea of being poor. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, let's finish up today. Let us talk about three tips for writing biography. Have you got three hot tips for any oh, aspiring geez. biography? I should, have warned me, you. You? I should have warned Gee. you about this. Sorry. Three tips I should struggle to think of. One, uh, I'll read, read, read. I mean, it's like any writing, just read. Yeah. Like, it's like journalism these days, the young journalists coming through. The young journalists coming through today, <laughs> um, they're, not well, they're not well enough read. You need to read. You need to read. And when you That's say read... That's really all you need to know. You need to read. Am I reading biographies or am I reading everything? Read everything. Read anything and everything. Be worldly. Just read as much as you can. I mean... So many of the, oh, I shouldn't be bagging the young journalists. Don't bag them because it's then it looks very, like a generational issue. Oh, look, it's very hard for, for I, don't, I mean, A, I wouldn't get into journalism today because the entry score is too high. <laughs> um, but it's so hard, it's so hard for them, but uh, they're not reading enough because there's too much weasel words coming through in their copy, you know, too mm. many facilities and initiatives and uh, affected and, you know, people affected by bushfires instead of victims. Okay, um, so we're going to, so that would be maybe your second tip would be to avoid weasel words. Oh, just get away with it. Read, read good stuff, you know, read, read, read the great authors, read, read the beautiful writers, you know, read, read, read Patrick White, read Woodhouse, you know, um, read Evelyn Moore, you know, broaden your horizons. Um, I mean, that helps you with your actual writing. Um, but just, 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 just be a sponge, absorb stuff. All right. Well, then, um, for your second tip, talk to me about research. How do I, how I do I research? No, that was on. Uh, Sorry, uh, that's one. Um, I'm very, research. I'm a very hard taskmaster. That was one. Uh, research. Well, we'll get in the military. I mean, again, as I said before, I'm not, a, I'm not a historian, so I'm, pro- I'm not the best person to ask about this. But for me, uh, you need to walk the ground. Um. I walked the ground that Blackburn walked back with Hoy. Oh, you did? Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. I w- walked the ground that Blackburn walked at Pozieres, where mm. he won his VC. And 
Um, Peter Stanley's written a very good book. Uh, it's called A Stout Pair of Books. We've heard of Peter Stanley. He's probably Australia's leading war historian. No, sorry. He, um, I can highly recommend A Stout Pair of, pair of Boots, which is uh, about um, researching a military book. Okay. And as you can guess from the title, it's about walking the ground. Wow. And uh, years, you read it. I've read I read a dozen books about Poziers, the biggest and bloodiest battle in Australia's history. Yep. And Blackburn was the heart of that. It's where he, where he won his fist. I read a dozen books about it, maybe 20 books about it. Yep. And I had a picture in my mind what it was, and it was nothing like I imagined it. And when I walked it, that, it gave you that perspective. It also gave you some colour. Uh, at the end of the Poziers chapter, I did a, just a you know, two-page colour piece on what it's like now and what it might have been like then, even though it's unimaginable. But yep. you've got to you've got to walk the ground. You've got to, it, it's like a it's like a reporter doing a feature. You've got to go out and sit down and have a cup of tea with the person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um it just makes such a difference. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Walking the ground is the most important thing, but also the military history, the Australian Memorial is a wonderful resource. There's, mm. there's so much material there. Uh, I spent a lot of time at the research centre in Canberra. Probably made three or four trips over there a couple of days each. Mm-hmm. Um, staff were incredibly helpful. They'll, I mean, they dug out. Um, I didn't even know this existed at the start. Blackburn had a field notebook um, in the trenches on the song. There you go. And I got to touch it and feel it and see it. And, oh. um, so the memorial is a wonderful thing. And the local library, uh, State Library of South Australia is wonderful. I mean, all these things are so easy to access. Um, National archives, uh, you know. So there's all these things out there that um, have, have tremendous resources that don't actually cost you any money, uh, other than travel. So okay. yeah. All right. So that's two. Read, walk the ground. What's the third one? Writing. When it comes to the oh. actual writing of the biography. Oh, look, everyone's different, aren't they? Oh, I write. I mean, when do you write? What's the best time of day for you to write? Middle of the night. Middle of the night, one time. Yeah, there you go. One <laughs> But so many other people, so many other people, you know, get up at eight o'clock and do three hours, have a break, and I couldn't do that. I'm, the brain doesn't get going. I mean, caffeine levels aren't high. <laughs> um, so maybe I mean, find, find your best time of day to write and do it then. Would that be it? Yeah. Well, thank you for summarising that. Any time. It's just you know. Well done. You're a good sub. Sour roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it's my time. Um, you know, I mentioned. Uh, Woodhouse before I've been reading a bit of him lately. He used to write between four and seven every day, seven days a week, and not, and not almost not at any other times. And we'd tune out three thousand words a day, a thousand words an hour. Mm. Like one of the greatest writers of the twentieth century. Mm. So I, I think you're spot on. I think you just find the time that works for you. Because mm. then it's then the words flow, and you're not feeling like you're just you know shoveling uphill, are you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. It's been um, absolutely pleasure, and I've really enjoyed our our chat. Just as I am enjoying your book, Stone Cold, by Andrew Faulkner. So, if you've got interest in military history or just a man with a great deal of contradictions, um, you should definitely have a read of that one. And um, best of luck with the book and the uh, cricket club <laughs> history. I'd, I might not be reading that yeah, one. Yeah, but I'm I, I pretty gather that you're not reading the cricket. It's though. probably not my thing. I'll, but yeah. I'll be happy with the, f- the fact that you're actually interested in the military history now. I oh, know, look at me. I'm, I'm all over it. <laughs> oh, look, Alison, that was a wonderful interview. Thank you very much. Thank and you. Thank you for taking the trouble to read the book and, and prepare for the interview. And um, it's been a great pleasure. No thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Fascinating interview, Al. 
Yeah, it was honestly, I we um I could have actually, you know, chatted away to Andrew for quite a long time. And mm. um I think uh that listeners will have heard from the conversation how interested I was. The book is actually, as I said, a very easy reading, you know, despite the sort of, you know, there, there was a little bit of military action going on and gun descriptions and plane descriptions and who knows what else. But um it was actually it's a he has a really lovely, easy writing style and it's a great read. So I think if you're looking for a dad present yeah, at dad some present. point. Great dad, dad present. present. Great dad present all round. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our working writers tip this week. We have a question from Gisela. So Gisela has asked, how do I format and present a manuscript, it's around 90,000 words, to submit to an agent or publisher if they don't specify? Are we still in the world of hard copies with a block of chocolate stapled to the first page, 12-point serif double-spaced, synopsis cover page with bio? Take it away, Al. Oh. <laughs> See what ones, I did there. I? Yeah, I saw exactly what you did there. Let me just throw that at you while you're not watching. Um, okay, so my first my first comment on this is that it's a very rare agent or publisher that will not specify. Mm. Like I, I actually did know this question was coming up. I was kind of hoping Valerie would take it over, but there you go. So I did do a little bit of research, and I've looked at several um, publishing and. Uh, agents websites just in the last 10 minutes and because that's how well researched I am <laughs> and um, I can honestly say that they all tell you exactly how they want them presented most these days will want it via email because they read them on readers they'll read it on their iPad or whatever they're not printing out and lugging around 300 page um, manuscripts so much any world double spacing is always a good idea it doesn't matter what you're sending um, make it as easy as possible for an editor to read it courier is always a good idea because it's one of the easiest um, on your eyes I mean I, I still write and uh, you know send my manuscripts off in courier just because it's you know probably force of habit as much as anything yeah. chocolate Alison is referring to the font as oh, opposed the font. to Sorry, sending yes. things by a courier yeah no as as in the font Korea. Um, chocolate doesn't work. Um, and in, in fact, and it's not just me saying that, but I'm going to quote Pippa Masson from Curtis Brown, who was uh, was featured in a story um, in Sunday Life magazine a couple of weeks ago. And she says, we get sent so many gifts, silly things like a tea bag with a manuscript, which does not work. Neither does chocolate. Now, Pippa is a literary agent. She's telling you chocolate doesn't work. Don't do it. <laughs> um, but yes, my, my, best advice here is really to have a look at the websites of the agent and the uh, publisher in question. They will tell you also, and this is really, really important, and it's important to read this, in their submissions guidelines, they will tell you if there is any particular style of fiction or non-fiction or whatever, or manuscript, that they are not interested in at this time. It may be because they've received a billion, you know, bios or a billion picture books or whatever mm. but they will they will let you know we are currently not accepting picture book submissions or you know non-fiction submissions or whatever mm. um and abide by that because if you send that in it's a waste of time of, yeah. for everybody they won't read it so hang on to it and and just keep an eye on those websites because they'll update them regularly and they'll let you know when they are when they are accepting those things again. But you know the big, one, one of the biggest mistakes people make that I'm discovering, not discovering, that I'm watching, mm-hmm. um, observing, is that um, people don't check back on the websites. They read, you know, when currently not accepting whatever genre and they believe that forevermore. Yeah. 
and and they don't bother. They, they, it's like they cross off that particular agent or publisher. But in fact, three months later, things might change for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. So it is so important to keep up to date with those things because things always do change. There are some people who I meet and they say, oh, no, I didn't bother sending it to so-and-so because they said whatever, that they're not accepting whatever. And that was two years ago. Yeah. And it's, you, you, the, the things definitely change because budgets change, emphasis tra- trends change. So uh, never just write off a particular agent or publisher because they're not accepting your particular genre now. You never know what could happen in three to six months. No, and can I just add also to keep an eye on those publishers' websites too because they often have, they'll have a special pitching day. For example, Mm. Alan and Unwin has their Friday pitch Mm. and it is where you send in the first chapter of your work in progress, which will probably be... um, I think mostly they're looking at commercial women's fiction in that sort of area, but I'm I'm making that up, so double-check to, you know, make sure I'm correct on that. Um, Make the most of those opportunities. Send your first chapter, you know, and and then what they basically do is you send it in on Friday and if they're interested in hearing more, you'll hear from them, reading more rather, Mm. you'll hear from them the following week. If you don't hear from them, they're not interested, you know, work on, go away and work on something else or or, or whatever you're going to do. Or improve your pitch. Or improve your pitch or whatever you're going to do. But... Um, like we, we know, we both know people who've been published by this yep. um, through this method, and it, it's a great opportunity. So look for those where you can find them. Absolutely. All right. So what are you up to this week, Al? Well, I finally made time to write my making time to write uh, course. So ah. I'm, I'm working on that. I'm also waiting. Um, I've got a couple oh, of yeah. manuscripts out on submission, and we've talked about that. How much I dislike the waiting, but I'm still waiting um, because that's publishing. It's really slow. Yes. Um, so I'm doing that and um, a couple of corporate jobs. That's what I'm up to this week. What about you, Valerie? I am weaning myself off Netflix now that I'm recovering are. from the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at the stage where I'm I can I'm hundred percent right in the brain to do work and stuff. So, uh, but I'm not quite ready physically to like go back to the gym or anything like that. So mm-hmm. yes, um, I'm weaning myself off Netflix and and getting stuck back into the work that I've neglected over the past week. So right. there's a bit of catching up to do. Oh, I, I'm I will, sure you'll get there. I will say though, I had to write a fifteen hundred, I mean, twelve hundred word article last week, and it was all I could do to stay upright to get that in by the deadline. Mm. Because as we know, you don't miss deadlines, no. even when you have the flu. And it was it was tough. I tell you, I hope it made sense. <laughs> <laughs> this is where practice and professionalism comes to your aid, right? You can pretty much do it with your eyes closed. <laughs> Oh dear. Uh, anyway, so where do we find you online? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate and you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Fantastic. And we'd love to hear from you. Give us a um, – connect with us on social media. And yeah, thank you. Do. And thank you for those of you who are giving shout-outs about uh, the podcast as well. Mm. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter and I'm – Easy to find on Facebook, just search for Valerie Koo. And uh, we look for, well, this brings us really to the end of our episode this week. Episode 101, episode- Podcasting 101. There it's right there. Go. That's mm. it, done. Anyway, we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Okay, bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.